Hey, it's Pastor Sam. I want to thank you for tuning into this week's sermon, which is from our current sermon series called Our Aim, as we look at the mission of Sacred City Church, which is to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city. You can find more information about Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois at scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Nehemiah 2, 9 through 20. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall. And I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned." And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I am Rob Spikestra. I have traveled from the city of Davenport, Iowa. I think, has anybody heard of that? Yeah, good. Um, I am the pastor of discipleship at uh, Sacred City Davenport. Anybody ever heard of that? Okay, good. Yeah, it's, it's my privilege. We are also going through uh, the book of Nehemiah, and so it's my privilege this morning to uh, 
come in here at this point in the story, Nehemiah chapter 2, as we read there, verses 9 through, 9 through 20. Um, this was not the way I would write a book uh, about building walls. You know, it just doesn't seem like that's a lot of excitement, a lot of, you know, something that, that you know, if I was God, uh, and you can thank God I'm not, but if I was, uh, this was not what I would write on. I would not write on how to build walls and uh, this, the story of history. And yet what we kind of discover here is that God is a God of history, that he came in, he broke into our world in history, and of course we know ultimately he did that in the person of Jesus Christ, and so we know that all that we read will either be pointing toward this great God, this King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, or we'll be looking back to who he is and what that uh, means for us as we look into the New Testament. So with that, let's ask God for help to show us why it is that he wanted us to be thinking about rebuilding walls. Father, we do pray help. Uh, we know that uh, we are people who don't hear very well uh, your word. We are people who naturally tend to want to be our own redeemers. And so, Father, we pray that as we are reading about this story, that you would show us that uh, we have only one redeemer. And that is your son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that that will give us great hope in the face of the wreckage that you are calling us into, into our own lives, into our families, into our communities. Um, and that would give us hope, Father, for what you want to do uh, in these places. So we thank you for what you'll be doing. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I was recently listening to a podcast, uh, a Sunday morning message uh, by Pete Scazzaro, uh, New Life Fellowship Church in Queens, New York. Uh, and it was a message on true peacemaking. He was going through the Beatitudes, and so he had come to that one Beatitude. I believe it's the seventh Beatitude. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And he was arguing that much of what we consider peacemaking today is really false peacemaking because most peacemakers are about appeasing or avoiding or are afraid of true peace. So that much peace today is founded rather on false uh, falses, uh, lies and uh, falsehoods rather than truth. So then he went on to show how true peacemaking begins with disrupting false Peace. You cannot have true peace without first disrupting false peace, and so he was calling his audience basically to create conflict in order, in order to create peace. But then he addressed what I believe most of us feel most of the time, and that is, Pete... I already have enough conflict in my life with just my normal, ordinary life and doing life. I don't need to create more conflicts. <laughs> in other words, the, the wreckage of the ordinary day-by-day -day things that goes within our own lives and within our families and then they're out, uh, it's enough. And so what he did at the end of this message is he addressed, 
He addressed that reality. Now, most of us feel that way coming into a Sunday morning gathering. We are already overwhelmed by our lives, and then we come to the gathering, and we walk by that, that phrase, that mission vision statement. Um, it's greater than our lives. Make disciples, plant churches, and renew cities. And we can easily become overwhelmed. Our version, perhaps, of the vision statement would be more like this. How about I just try to be a disciple, get to church, and maybe clean up the mess on my desk? This is probably how the exiles felt in Jerusalem. They had visions of grandeur 25 years earlier when they rose up to the challenge to build the temple. They had accomplished the monumental project with a, a, a bit of mixed reactions. If you remember the moment in which they built the foundations, the foundations just simply provided for them the outline of the temple. Uh, there was mixed reactions based upon whether or not you had seen the first temple or not. And so some wept by its smallness. Some shouted with joy, for they had no comparison. Ezra records these words in Ezra 3.13. He says, Some wept, many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. So it's 13 years later, temples built, but no great revival has occurred. Jerusalem is still in a poor condition. They're still surrounded by enemies outside of Jerusalem. There are enemies within Jerusalem. The walls are in shambles, and they are sitting isolated and alone. At this point, their vision was probably something like, quietly follow God, keep your head down, and don't make any waves. Well, where we have come so far in this epic story is that in chapter 1, Nehemiah learns of the condition of Jerusalem. So we turn there, chapter 1, verse 3, and this is what they said to him. The remnant there in the providence who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. The, the exiles are in great trouble and physically they are vulnerable to attack. But notice also that they are living in shame. The condition of their lives in their city does not reflect their theology. They claim that God is great. That is, he is sovereign and in control of all things. They claim that he is glorious so they don't have to fear others. They claim that he is good so they don't have to look elsewhere for their satisfaction. And they claim he is gracious, so they don't have to prove themselves. But you look at their lives, and you look at the condition of the place where the living God of the universe meets with his people, and he doesn't look so great or glorious or good or gracious. And they are living in those, the shame of those claims. And so often... That's true of us. Our individual lives are filled with wreckage. Our marriages are more often in conflict than in the place of peace. Our teenagers are in rebellion. We look on our cities and they're embracing the insanity of the cultural moments. 
basic truths of scripture that used to be promoted by society and now looked upon as antithetical to human flourishing. And then we walk into this building and we are reminded of our vision, make disciples, plant churches, and renew cities. And we are overwhelmed. How do we rise up to the overwhelming work of God that he's calling us to do in our lives and our family lives within our church and within our communities? Well, in Nehemiah 2, verses 9 through 20, we can be encouraged discovering that in the face of overwhelming task of rebuilding lives, including our own, God provides direction. So let's start with, to make a connection, let's start with the overwhelming task uh, itself. So let's begin with the task itself, uh, rebuilding the walls, uh, beginning at verse 11. So this is what we see. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days, and then I rose in the night, and I and a few with me, a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into, into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me, but the one on which I rode. And so I went out by night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. And then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal there that was under me to pass. And so then I went up into the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned." In his midnight ride, this is the first-hand information gained. The extent of the need, the first thing he needed to know was what, re, what re, raw resources were going to be necessary. And when he made this ride, he found it was overwhelming. Taking a small group of men, he began his inspection. His aim was, was, his aim was stealth. So while Jerusalem was sound asleep, Nehemiah and his escort snuck out. And we don't know what kind of animal he was riding, but most likely it was a mule or a donkey. Imagine, you imagine the darkness uh, that they're going out in. And so he, he's uh, asking for just a few people. We don't know who these individuals are. A few people, possibly those who are familiar with the, the path and familiar with the walls themselves in the pitch black darkness to kind of take him through so in the verse 12, uh, we get the detail that it is this animal uh, with him. Uh, animals would be drawing attention, so there's only going to be one animal. Most likely, Nehemiah had a plan, but he needed to see for himself the extent of the damage to see if his plan was even feasible. Equally, as a newcomer, he anticipated the objection from those who had lived in Jerusalem for all these years when he was going to tell them what God had put upon their hearts. They would probably say something like, you have no clue what you are proposing. <laughs> he needed to have a clue. So he begins at the valley gates. What he was doing is he was starting on the west side of the of the city. Uh, you can imagine this somewhat like an, 
inverted pyramid, very thin pyramid coming down to a point. So he, he starts at the valley gate. It's on the west side. He's kind of walked across the north side. And now he's at the west side. Uh, and it's those hills on that west side that are fairly steep. So once outside the valley gate, the party turns south and makes their way to the southernmost point, the Dung Gates. The Dung Gate is the gate at the southernmost tip the Dungate was at the tip of this inverted triangle. As the name suggests, uh, this is the gate leading out into the valley of Hinnom, or later Gehana. And in this valley was where all the refuse and garbage was dumped and burned. Somewhat like our burn pits that you find out in the country, kind of always burning. In the verse 13, this is what he found. The walls, they were broken down, and its gates were destroyed by fire. He continued his inspection, verse 14. He says there, then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool. And so the fountain gate is just a little bit northeast of the dung gate. And so they are beginning to make their way north, but now on the east side. And if what he found on the west side was discouraging, it was much worse on the east side. See, end of verse 14, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. The, the pile of rubble was so great that even the sure-footed mule was unable to find footing. It was there where he dismounted and joined his party on foot. He continued north until he returned to where he had started the valley gates. And this is what he saw. Much of the west side uh, was sloped. And so to support the walls, terraces were built. So when the walls were knocked down by Nebuchadnezzar, the stones fell into a jumbled mass at the bottom of the slope. And this was same true of the east side, but to even a greater descent. So think about this. While the raw resources stone was there, most of it was at the bottom of two valleys. The stones to be reassembled were massive. See, this isn't a, this isn't a garden uh, fence, a brick wall, or even a large earthwork fortification. Now, the blocks that had tumbled down into the valley were of great weight. And so they would need to be hauled back up to the site of the wall and reassembled. Now, this is 445 B.C., 2,175 years before John Deere sold their first plow. And, in a, and another 75 years before John Deere began putting out heavy equipment. So this was going to require another type of resource. Human resource. And what we're going to see next week in detail, we're going to see what Nehemiah had to work with. And let's just say it was not a lot of engineers or skilled tradesmen's or construction workers. No, just ordinary people like you and me. Religious folk who weren't used to outdoor labor, goldsmiths, perfumers, I don't get a whole lot of hope out of them, 
merchants, and just a lot of ordinary people. An overwhelming task being asked just ordinary people. Think about what God is calling to us, calling us to here in this room to do. We are all people who, because of our brokenness and the brokenness around us, we are all people who the glory of being made in the image of God, we are all people whose image of that great God has been wrecked. Our lives can be likened more to the pile of rubble than a majestic city on a hill. And God is calling us to rebuild. To rebuild on this side of embracing Christ as our Redeemer, and it feels like an overwhelming task. Resources are there, but a lot of heavy lifting is what God is calling us to do in our lives. And like any task where the kingdom of God is expanding upon the human heart and thus upon the kingdom of men, there's going to be opposition. For Nehemiah, the, uh, there was the practical, number one, reality of the king's years earlier edicts to not build the walls of Jerusalem. See, Nehemiah was familiar with what had happened a little over a decade earlier. They had not been permitted to have the proper permits to build the walls. And so the exiles, they began to rebuild, uh, began to be rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And there was an immediate protest by all of those who were not God's people. They petitioned the king. So that we read the king's reply back in Ezra chapter 4 verse 21. The king replied, make a decree that these men be made to cease and the city not be rebuilt. Until a decree is made by me and take care not to be slack in this matter. <laughs> and so those opposed to the people of God, they knew how to cast their protest in such a way that they would get the king's favor. And they got the king's favor to stop the rebuildings, they'd receive the sympathy of the king, the sympathy of the government, so that whatever patronage Ezra had enjoyed to get the temple built was now suddenly in ruins as Nehemiah enters into the city, or Nehemiah, the God's putting upon his heart to rebuild these walls. And so Jerusalem was alone. Jerusalem was alone and vulnerable before, before Nehemiah. Well, we live in a similar day. Oh, opponents of the followers of Jesus Christ know how to cast their protest in a way that they receive the sympathy of the wielders of our own government. So there is opposition. Legal decrees made against the things of God. 
But not only are there legal decrees, there are just simply flesh and blood enemies of God's people. And so we're introduced to them in verses 9 and 10. So look there again in your Bibles, verses 9 and 10. And then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Hornonite and Tobiah the Ammonite served, uh, servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Just when God has put a great work upon our heart, just as quickly there is opposition. Let's just break this down a bit. Within the province named Beyond the River, there were multiple districts. The district to the north of Jerusalem was the district of Samaria. The governor was Sanballat. He had political clout. He had military clout. But even more disturbing it was that he had a connection with the high priest by marriage and presumably some influence within the temple itself. We have Tobiah, a Hebrew name, uh, meaning Yahweh is good. So he's a Jew, but he's a Jew who's a governor of the district of Ammon to the east of Jerusalem. And he had such influence with the high priest that he actually had an office in the chamber of the, uh, of the outer court, of the very court of the temple. You can read about that in chapter 13, beginning in verse 4. So when Nehemiah arrived with an impressive entourage of horses, officers and horsemen and with the king's letters giving permission to rebuild the walls and the provision of necessary raw resources, verse 10, it says it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. And it's possible that they represented the majority view of the province. So we, we have an enemy to the north, and we have an enemy to the east. But now look down at verse 19. Third character is introduced for us there. But when Sanballat, the Hornonite, the Tob and Tobiah, Ammonite servant, uh, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So we got Geshem, Geshem, the Arab. Geshem ruled a league of Arabian tribes which took control of Moab and Edom. So that's southeast of Judah. And Arabia itself was located in the south. And her influence affected the southwest of uh, Judea, the access into Egypt. So really what we have here is we have, we have those who are provinces, or excuse me, districts that are north and east and southwest, or southeast and south and southwest. All of these, all these districts, they are, they are ruled by governors who are against what's going on in Jerusalem. The only place we have is west, and the west is the Mediterranean Sea. So they are virtually surrounded by opposing governors. And so look at their response. When you're in the majority, they jeered at us. Jeers 
or insulting, contemptuous remarks. All decorum at this point, you know, is, is set aside because they know the position that they hold, and so they're jeer, contemptuous remarks, jeering at them. And it comes out of a heart, they, uh, it says there, they despise, it comes out of a heart of, uh, of being despised. So despise is that heart attitude of looking down upon someone else as worthless, and repugnant, and even harmful. That's how they saw the people of God. There's a sense of deep contempt with these men who are legitimate enemies. And so they know the edict that was given over a dozen years ago. They say, they ask, are you rebelling against the king? See, this was a scare tactic. They know they weren't rebelling against the king because already we know that Sanballat and Tobiah, that, that Nehemiah had given them the king's edict that says that you can rebuild. But no, they still say that, uh, that are you doing this? What they're doing is they're attempting to scare the people. But not only that, rumor placed into the right ears might change the king's mind. And so it's somewhat of a veiled threat. Nehemiah was in the minority he had minority power. He might have had influence and power in Susa, but Susa was a long, long, long way away from Jerusalem, and information and response was slow and coming and going. The enemy of God, the enemy could easily do some things. Minority. We live in a day where basic doctrines like original sin, that is, where, all where we are all conceived in sin and thus there is rebellion and foolishness in all of us from birth. We live in a day when that doctrine is no longer tolerated. This is considered repugnant and not just worthless, but harmful. Those who hold to original sin will be jeered. To hold that marriage as between only a man and a woman is considered repugnant and not just worthless, but harmful to our society. Those who hold to marriage between only a man and a woman will be jeered. To hold that scripture is ultimately authoritative for doctrine and practice and to submit one's will to its teaching is considered repugnant and not just worthless, but harmful to our society, which believes that reality is found within each one of us. To hold to scripture is to be jeered. Flesh and blood enemies of God's people. But we know behind the flesh and blood enemies are spiritual enemies. And so Paul's words in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 12, Paul's words were as true in their day as it was in Paul's day and is true in our day. He wrote, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. God calls his people to an overwhelming task. 
How do we rise up? Rise up to the overwhelming task God is calling us to do in our lives, our families' lives, within our church and within our cities. What direction does God give us in this passage? Well, look at the godly direction. The most powerful and practical action we can take in the face of overwhelming, the overwhelming tasks is prayer. These first two chapters, we have a narrative filled with prayer. When Nehemiah learned of the condition of Jerusalem and the shame of the exiles, remember back there it says, he sat down and wept and mourned and fasted and prayed. And we know by the dates given, uh, he prayed for three months seeking God's will. Now, what I find instructive about what Nehemiah did is that he went in with an empty slate. He went into prayer with an empty slate. Back in chapter 1, nowhere in that prayer does Nehemiah mention rebuilding walls. Rather, his prayer is one of confession. His prayer is one of appealing to God's covenant with his people. But what we don't hear Jeremiah, excuse me, Nehemiah doing is asking God to bless his plan to rebuild the walls and gates. Rather, it's not until chapter 2, verse 12, our passage, that we discover that God has put the rebuilding of the walls into Nehemiah's hearts. This is the first time. See that in verse 12, he said, I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. See, how often we're confronted with a problem, a difficulty, maybe it's a financial difficulty, maybe it's a relational uh, tension that you're going through, and we come up with a plan, and then we, we, uh, we put our thinking caps on, and we come up with some solution, and then being good Christians, what do we do? We pray, and we ask for God's blessing on our plan. But that's not the order we find here. Rather, we find Nehemiah praying, confessing, and appealing to God's promises. And sometime along the way, in those three months, God puts on Nehemiah's heart that he is the man to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. The first time we hear of it is the same time the king hears of it. In verse 5. And one more thing to note here. Nehemiah's prayers were moved by the glory of God, and we, we see that. Look again at that phrase in verse 12. Again, I'll reread it. I told no one that my God had put into my heart what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. When it's for Jerusalem... What this means is that it was for the glory of God and for the good of his people. When the walls of Jerusalem are broken down and the gates are destroyed by fire, it does not reflect well upon God's glory, his God's greatness, God's goodness, God's grace. It is incongruent with what Nehemiah prays about in chapter 1, verse 5, when he prays, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. 
Nehemiah is concerned about God's glory and the good of God's people. For when God is glorified, his people enjoy safety. So Nehemiah's focus extends outside of his own name and outside of his own fame to God's name and to God's fame. So when we pray, let us pray for the good of God's people and the glory of God's people. So the first thing we do is we pray. A second action, we plan. What God had put on his heart, Nehemiah did not initially share with anyone. He was discreet. He knew the work was going to be great with great odds against his success. He needed more than just inspiring words, so he did need a plan. So what are the steps in producing a good plan? Well, the first step is conceptualization, just conceiving what this is going to be like, conceptualization. Nehemiah went to Jerusalem with some kind of conception of what, he, what needed to be done. Uh, and we know this from his response uh, to the king's question, verses 6 through 8, that he had some idea of how long it's going to take. And he anticipated the opposition, and he also estimated the need for raw resources. So he even considered what he personally was going to need in terms of housing. That God has given us this amazing ability to imagine and research and to conceptualize in our heads what could be a great vision, however, without going into the realities of making the vision come true will not motivate when you are confronted with those realities. And so second step in making a, producing a good plan is we need to get boots on the ground information. <laughs> boots on the ground information. He had a conception of what was needed, but now he needed to compare and contrast the conception with the reality. And so that's what he did in the middle of the night. Now, in order to instill confidence in us, the, the third direction God gives as we face overwhelming tasks is we need people. We need people. We need a community. We need to bring others into our prayers and plans. See, verse 17. Then I said to them, inferring to those in verse 16, then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates burned down? Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. Now, to compel others, we need, first of all, to show them something, and that is we need to show them what is wrong. Soon after he had completed his inspection, probably as early as the next morning when the sun came up, or perhaps a few days later, after seeing firsthand the task, Nehemiah discloses for the first time what God had placed upon his heart, his real purpose for his visit. He was there to rebuild the walls. Now he has to convince the key players in the, the perfumers, the merchants, the religious people. He had, to, he had to convince them by raising their attention to what they had become accustomed to. See, the word trouble there in verse 17 is a strong word in the Hebrew to describe an evil that would come upon them. You know, it's, isn't it amazing how we become so accustomed to the trouble around us, to the evil around us, that after a while we don't even see it anymore? 
Personally, we become accustomed to our own sinful tendencies, our own sinful ways of relating to others. We don't even see it. It takes somebody else to show us. They're in trouble, and thus God is mocked. And secondly, so we see that they are a people of derision. The condition of the walls was, as noted above in verse 12, was incongruent with whom God is, powerful and good. Psalm 44. It's a compelling expression of how the inhabitants of Jerusalem must have felt. It reads this way, middle of it, verses 13 through 16. You, you have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn, scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long my disgrace is before me and shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. So those looking at their lives are treating them with scorn at their pitiful condition. They are laughable to their neighbors. But we need to compel those around us with what is wrong. And it, and it may be what, it may be my wrong. It may be the need for my own heart to be rebuilt. And I need to, I need to tell people what's wrong with me. So they can come alongside what God has revealed to me in my prayer and in my plan to somehow overcome. I need to bring them into that plan, into those prayers. I need their prayers. I need them in the plan. See, the essence of what is wrong in us or in our communities is what makes the task so overwhelming. It is the sin that has plagued you for years. It's the broken relationship that you have learned just to manage rather than deal with the real issues. It's the lack of submission to the clear teaching of God's word over years. And that's what makes it overwhelming. We just kind of gotten used to it. And so we need somebody to come in. We need to hear what is wrong. We need to know what is wrong. We need to bring them into what is wrong if we're going to compel them. But secondly, they need to know also what is right. Uh, verse 18, look at that second part uh, there. Uh, wait a minute. Let's begin in the first part. And I told them, the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. The, the phrase, the hand of my God that was upon me, there are similar phrases that express God's active support. And they're repeated multiple times uh, throughout Ezra and Nehemiah. So the key to the success of the mission is God's active support. That's what he's saying. Here's, here's, the, here's the key. God's on our side. That good is, one, Nehemiah had say, starts with God's conviction. 
are weeping and mourning over what is wrong. And then the good uh, that he's done is the prayer he has called us to. And then the good is the plan that is beginning to unfold within our lives. So undoubtedly, uh, Nehemiah shared with them what God had put upon his heart and how God had not only moved him to speak to the king at the risk of his life, but God gave him protection against the potential king's potential wrath. And then how God gave him courage to ask and to, uh, to ask and favor to receive from the king the necessary resources to build the walls. And, and, but more importantly, he had received Artaxerxes' permission to rebuild the walls. They needed to know the good that God was already doing. Sharing the good that had already occurred in the face of the wrong had its effect in the verse 18. And so they said, let us rise up and build. <laughs> and so they strengthened their hands for the good work. We need God's people. We need one another. We, we need all this brokenness into each other's lives. Finally, the last direction is proper focus, proper focus. And I think we see this in verse 20 in Nehemiah's response to Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, verse 20. He replies to them, these three opponents, the God of heaven will, the God of heaven will make us prosper. <laughs> okay, um, that's good news. Uh, God will make us prosper. See, see we, began, we began this service, the very first song we began with, we were reminded again, oh yeah, he's still on the throne. He's on the throne. He will have his way. God will, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will rise, arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. See, Nehemiah is not banking upon the king's, the earthly king's edict. He is banking on the heavenly king's decree. His hope is in the character of God and the promises made out of that character. Yes, they will act. His servants will arise and build, but ultimately their hope is on their relationship with the living God of the universe. See, look again what he says to these three powerful flesh and blood enemies. He says to them, you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Now, since inside Jerusalem is a centerpiece of where God meets and atones for humanity, Nehemiah is reminding his enemies of their place before that living God. He says, you have no portion, no rights, no claim on him. Which means they, God's people, have a portion, a right, and a claim on God. See, what is not true of his opponents is true of them. Our hope in the face of the overwhelming task is that this covenantal relationship with the God of the universe, that's where our hope lies. So God relates to humanity through covenants, 
And those who come into relationship with him through the new covenant have a claim on him. He is their father. In eternity past, God placed his loving choice on those in whom he would be, who would be related to him and whom he would be their heavenly father. We could even say he made a claim on individuals to be his sons and daughters. And then he sent his son to make the claim possible. Jesus Christ lived a sinless life in order that when he went to the cross, suffered and died, he died for the sins of those upon whom he had made a claim. Death was unable to hold him. He rose again, and the Spirit since then has been at work awakening those whom he placed his claim. He claims them as his children, and they claim him as father. God calls his children then into overwhelming tasks. I was thinking this morning, possibly it's in your head already. Romans 8, 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. See, there is no provision for unadoption. That's true humanly. My fourth child is adopted. When, when I adopted her, when we adopted her, there was no provision for unadoption. She, she may go astray, we may go astray in terms of our relationship with one another, but I'm still her father. She's still my daughter. I can't unadopt her. That came from God. God is the one who has placed his claim on a particular people. And so he made a way for those particular people then to claim him as father. And so as we come to this passage, the proper focus for us to, to, to have in this is that God is not calling us to work harder. God is calling us to focus in on him and our relationship with him that he made with us through the covenant the new covenant. God calls his children to be overwhelming tasks in order that they might experience what Nehemiah prays, that he is their covenant God. See, back in chapter 1, he says, Yahweh, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenants and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. See, at the end of Pete Scossero's message, God's peace has to be, he says, God's peace has to be flooding into you before you can give it out to others. He, he says, we've got to stop doing violence to our own souls. And, and the violence to our souls that he was identifying is, he says, we are way too active, way too busy, and we're not sitting in and enjoying the relationship that we have with the Father. 
So I think this is what Nehemiah is getting at here. What, what we have here is he's, he's making a claim. He's making the claim that if we're going to do this work that is overwhelming people, then what we need to do is we need to rest in the one who has, who has entered into a covenant with us and enjoy that relationship. We need to have room in our souls. See, the Lord's Supper is that weekly rhythm with a truth so profound. The covenant relationship with God. And so we need to daily, at least once a day, if not several times a day, we need to just sit in and enjoy the reality. This reality. That he really loves you as his own children and that he sent his son to take your sins in his body to die on the cross so we take that bread and reminded of this and he shed his blood for the for the forgiveness of our sins and we call that a the new covenant this this cup of the new covenants and we enjoy that reality that he's happy with us that we are his children that he has made a claim on us and we can claim, make a claim on him that he is our father. And in that claim then, as he calls us, as we enjoy what he has given to us, we enjoy the love that we have in this relationship, as we enjoy as Pete Siscaros was doing with regards to that beatitude, that we are at peace with him. It fills us up in order then for us to be people who then can then step into these overwhelming tasks, and no, he will do it. He will make us prosper. We have a portion, we have a right, we have a claim on him. He invited us to make that claim. Here's my father. Father, thank you. We are overwhelmed by our own lives, let alone what you're calling us to do through our lives to make disciples, plant churches, and renew our cities. And yet, Father, you made a way. Father, help us to be people of prayer. Help us to plan well. But ultimately, Father, we're praying that we would be people who are properly focused upon our relationship with you and we do enjoy that relationship. So, Father, as we take this bread and these, this cup, we would pray that that would be again a, a reminder, but more than that, that you would meet us here in this place, that you would feed us again and the good news, that Christ is our Savior, that he gave his body, took your wrath, made a way, shed his blood in order that we might be, might be your children. So as your children, we thank you, Father, for what you are, have done and are doing and will do through our lives wherever you're calling us to be rebuilding. Make us prosper. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.